The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Words the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. When I was in high school, uh, I was in speech. Uh, one of the things that I loved to do was uh, improv, uh, group improv or solo or individual improv. Um, it's kind of like this, this format, trying to be funny, create characters right on the fly. Uh, and, and because of, I love that so much, I really grew to love Saturday Night Live. Uh, really, the whole s- show is based upon these uh, comedy sketches, thinking fast, being witty and funny. Uh, and I specifically love, what I loved about SNL was, was the characters that would reappear. Um, you, you get guys like Wayne and Garth, um, super funny, and, and the old church lady, uh, what's his name, uh, who lives, Matt Foley, who lives down in the van by a river. Uh, all these characters, super funny, absolutely hilarious. Uh, but there's one character who stands in stark contrast from all the rest, uh, and her name gives it away. Her name is Debbie Downer. Debbie Downer, she had the ability to take a nice, delightful conversation and just tank it by bringing up feline AIDS or, or the death count of a recent natural disaster. She just would ruin the conversation. Whenever she said one of her, her heartbreaking statistics, you would hear this wah, 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 wah sound effect that would come every time. If Ecclesiastes were a Saturday Night Live character, it would be Debbie Downer. Uh, there are a lot of wah wahs in this book. Uh, and this is probably why Ecclesiastes is not a crowd favorite, right? You sit down, your morning cup of coffee, you're opening up God's word, you need that encouraging word to get you through the day. You're not going to turn to Ecclesiastes, right? That's going gonna, gonna to make you want to turn around and go right back to bed. Because Ecclesiastes is like having the cynic in the room who can see through everything. It's like having the chef who says, something's missing. It's having the perfectionist who says, eh, this isn't quite right. And even with all the wah-wahs in Ecclesiastes, it's not meant to be this doom and gloom type of book. It's, It's not meant to be a book that makes you go right back to bed. What it's meant to be is a sobering wake-up call to the, to the illusions and ver, uh, veneer of life. 
It's supposed to help us see through the things that are superficial and get to what is really of substance and has meaning. And it doesn't do this in some sort of cheesy Christian bookstore bestseller kind of way because Ecclesiastes is brutally honest. It looks at the reality of life square in the eye and says it how it is. In fact, uh, Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick, he says Ecclesiastes is the truest of all books, which I think is one of the reasons why so many people, specifically church people, like to sidestep this book. It feels too real, too honest, and it can get a little bit scary. Because the thing about Ecclesiastes is it's not black and white truth, right? If you think about Proverbs, it's, it's sort of black and white. It's, it's actually mathematics almost, that a good man plus God's love plus wisdom equals a good life. Where in Ecclesiastes, things are a little more grayscale. It's a good man plus God's love plus wisdom is still going to die just like the next guy. That's true. In light of death, which our, our, the, the author of this text refers to as the great equalizer, we're left with this question, how do we get the most out of this life? Now, Philip Ryken says, Ecclesiastes is the most contemporary book in the Bible. Not because it was penned the most recently. In fact, it, it, it's ancient. It's older than all the, it's in the Old Testament. Uh, it, it's not part of the New Testament. Uh, it's not modern in the sense that it's brand new, freshly written. It, it is, it's the most contemporary book because it's super relevant for today. It picks apart the values of secularism. Uh, secularism, really, what, what, what the main idea of secularism is, is to, eva- to elevate something else, whether it be wealth, knowledge, pleasure, work, sex, prestige. But Ecclesiastes says all that is empty. Now, these values of secularism subtly shape and distract God's people from life's true meaning in all generations. Today, we find that the call of discipleship, which is really where we find the true meaning of life, where where real significance is, is being eclipsed by secular values. Now, rather than take the turn or burn approach, Right? Change your ways or you're going to hell. The preacher of Ecclesiastes, who we see in, in, in verse 1 and 2, introduces himself, or Kohelet, it's a, the Hebrew word that, that keeps coming up as the teacher, the preacher, it's the gatherer of people to instruct, is believed to be Solomon. That's what tradition has us believe, that this is Solomon who's speaking to us. Um, and, and there's a little bit of a debate over that, but. Most scholars believe that this is at least in the voice of Solomon. Uh, He approaches the topic of life as someone who has been there and done that. He's not talking hypothetically or theoretically. He's a guy who has given himself to everything the world has to offer. He's been there. He's done that. He knows firsthand. See, we need to know about King Solomon is this. He, aside from Jesus, he is the wisest man who's ever roamed the earth. After uh, King David passed away, Solomon took over uh, the kingdom of Israel as the second, well, third king. Uh, and in 2 Chronicles 1, God says to Solomon, ask for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. 
And Solomon, he thinks about it, and he says, you know what I want? I, I want wisdom. Would you give me wisdom? And God found it to be such a great request that God gave him wisdom. But on top of that, he gives Solomon riches and power and honor. By every secular standard and metric, King Solomon is a great man. And as we go through Ecclesiastes, we'll learn more about him. But all this is to say that Solomon has experienced everything that life has, off, has to offer to the nth degree. And having tried and tested and been through everything, he says it's havel, meaningless, vanity. That's, that's the Hebrew word that we're going to see over and over and over again throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. We see it Five times in verse 2, he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, the ESV translates this Havel word as, uh, uh, as vanity, obviously, we've seen five times. Uh, NIV translations of the Bible might say, It's meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But uh, a better word, to translate Havel to carries some imagery is, is vapor. You can look down into your ESV Bible and see uh, a footnote. Actually, if you're looking in your Bible, uh, Ecclesiastes is about halfway through your Bible, uh, just after Psalms and Proverbs. So if you want to grab a pew Bible in front of you, you can do that, follow along with us. But in the footnote, you see that that word Havel uh, could also be translated as vapor or mere breath. Now, occasionally when I'm driving through town, I'll come up to a stoplight and, and I see smoke bellowing out of somebody's car, right? They got the window open, moonroof, something. We see this vapor just pouring out. And I'm like, oh, man, this car might actually be on fire. Uh, but you pull up a little bit closer because you're curious because you want to see if the car's on fire. You pull up a little bit closer and you just see that somebody's like sucking on uh, a vape pen. You know, it's like a battery with juice on it. They're, cigarette replacement. They're... they're Smoking, they're vaping uh, on this juice pack, um, making vapor, vapor. And if you look at, if you've got five minutes on the internet this afternoon, go to, go to YouTube and, and Google uh, vaping tricks, and you'll see some people who take blowing smoke rings to the whole new level, right? They can blow these smoke rings and make designs and blow more smoke rings through smoke rings, and it's crazy, absolutely crazy. And it's, it's really beautiful, fascinating. But if you go out and you try to grab the ring, right, try to grab the, the smoke, the vapor that they're, they're putting out, your hands are empty. There's nothing there. That is what Havel is meant to invoke, this unattainable, elusive, fleeting nature of everything under the sun. That's really the whole, well, at least part of the thesis of this book of Ecclesiastes. Everything under the sun is vapor, it's elusive, it's meaningless, it's futile. Beauty, work, pleasure, knowledge, even good things like family are all vanity. What this book is doing is demonstrating the futility and the frustration of our fallen world. And really it takes a lot of honesty to come to this realization. Now some of you are coming to church today hoping for some encouragement and uh, so far, this isn't hitting the spot. I don't, I don't blame you here. Uh, in fact, last week I said Christians ought to be the most joyful people in the city. But today, it feels like we're being quite depressing. Um, 
But this shows, Ecclesiastes shows, this book of the Bible shows that Christian joy isn't based on naivety. Christian joy is able to look at Ecclesiastes and say, yes, this is true, but there's something beyond this. Because the preacher of Ecclesiastes looks out at the world and he says, everything sucks. Everything, it's not worth it. Now, theologically, you can look at the world and say, this is because of the fall that we see in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve eat the fruit that God prohibited for them to eat. When they did that, everything falls apart. Right? At one point, work was fulfilling in the garden. Uh, we see radical abundance and intimacy with God. And if you think sex is good now, just think of how it was back in the garden. It was, it was insane. Everything was incredible, and in chapter 3 of Genesis, falls apart. Now, Ecclesiastes can be seen as a lament of once was. There's this longing that we all have for Eden to get back to a life that was like that. But as we make our way through this world, the tears of frustration, in a sense, pay tribute to the world that's been lost. The cool thing about Ecclesiastes is you don't need to, to know a lick of Scripture to resonate with this truth that all is vanity. You don't need to know a biblical history. You don't need to know any theological terms to catch on to what's being said here because what Solomon is saying, what the preacher is saying is based on human experience. This is one of the things that makes Ecclesiastes such an approachable text for us. It's so missional. Right, no matter who you are, no matter where you're at with Jesus, no matter what your religious background is, people can relate to this. And if there's any sermon series worth inviting your skeptical friends, your not yet believing friends to, it's this one. Because we get it. We can, we can all relate to this on basis of human experience. And here's how you know this is true. Go into work tomorrow. Sit down next to anybody in the break room at lunch and say, you know what? Work, this is it's for the birds right? This is so hard. What's it matter, right? And I bet you could fill up that whole entire lunch hour just, just belly aching about work, right? How frustrating it is. The people you work with, the job itself, you can belly ache all afternoon. And that's where the preacher begins in verse three. He says, what does man gain by all the toil, all the work at which he toils under the sun? And we'll get more into this next week about work and, and the futility of work. But he's asking the question, what's the point of all this? What is there to gain? That's the underlying question through the book of Ecclesiastes. What is there to gain by all that's under the sun? What does life have to offer? And he's not just talking about the toil of our jobs or vocation, but the toil of life as a whole. What do we have to gain by, by waking up every day and brushing our teeth and looking pretty? What do we have to gain by raising kids, making art and culture, gardening and farming, mowing our lawns, renovating homes? What's to gain by all of this work? Now the underlying hope, what we're holding out for is that we can maybe make a positive dent in the world. Right? We can make a little bit of an impact, some sort of change. And part of this hope is due to our na naivety. Right? Specifically, young people uh, in their adolescence, in their 20s, who want to go out and change the world. They've got big dreams. 
By their 40s and 50s, most people realize those dreams don't come to fruition. They're pretty much who they are for the rest of their life. And that's why there's a lot of so many midlife crises that happens right around this 40s and 50s point that people either don't accomplish what they set out to do or they accomplish what they set out to do, but they're still not satisfied. There's still frustration. Now, Jesus asks a similar question as to what the, the preacher is asking when he says, what is there to gain? Jesus says, what profit, what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? Right? Now, what, what this is doing is simply pointing at the reality that, that everything that the world has to offer, if, if it were to give it to us on a silver platter, still wouldn't fulfill this desire we have, this hunger, this thirst we have for Eden. It's something that this world cannot quench, if, even if it throws all of its resources at it. So it takes a sacred cynic. I like that, that term, a sacred cynic, because somebody who can see the world uh, realistically through God's eyes, not to be cynical for the sake of being cynical, right? not somebody who's constantly depressed and in despair and just Ugh, it sucks to be around him, right? Not that. As someone who's who, a sacred cynic who can look at things and see through the, the, the veneer, the, the things that are not really going to fulfill like God does. To realize the empty promises of our labor and toil, that it's all vapor. We'll see wave after wave of generation come and go, and people are still left with the same longings. Right? We're here. We're experiencing the same thing that people experienced four or five generations ago, this hunger. Now, how foolish must we be to think that this generation is finally going to put all the pieces together? Now, verse 4 through 7, verses 4 through 7 tells us that generations will come and go, but creation will carry on with its ways. Verse 4 says, generation goes the generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The futility of this world keeps going and go. Energizer, buddy. We see the same monotony in our daily doing and undoing of creation. Verses five through seven, he says, the sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastes to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full, to the place where the streams flow. There they will flow again. We see the same monotonous futility of creation mirrored in our own lives. Right? Just like the sun. Think about it. Where you are at 2 p.m. on Monday is likely to be where you're going to be at 2 p.m. on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. You're going to wake up, you're going to shower, brush your teeth, get dressed, maybe eat some breakfast, pour a cup of coffee, go to work, take a lunch break, go back to work, go home and eat, sleep, do it all over again. That's the cycle, just like the sun, up and down, back around. We do this day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year just like the wind that follows its circuit. There might be a little bit of spontaneity in there, but it all comes back 
fits in routine. Now, some of you might feel this, this cloud of seasonal affective disorder uh, start to kind of lift, right? As the sun comes out, hopefully it's going to start to get nicer. But it's likely that you'll experience that once again in six, seven, eight months. It's going to come right back. And we think that all the things that we occupy ourselves with, that time domain, whether it be food, sex, drink, exercise, learning, all of that stuff never fills us up. It's like the ocean in verse 7, that, that the streams are all flowing to it, but it's never quite full. And then the streams keep going. See, we, all life under the sun is a never-ending cycle of monotonous futility. And you know where it gets you? This grind, this toil, the answer to that, what's to gain? The preacher answers that in verse 8. He says, exhaustion. He says, all the things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Now, verse 8 is a really poetic take on the weariness of life, that you can get tired of talking about being tired. You can get exhausted from hearing about being exhausted. You're probably tired of this already. You can get fatigued from seeing fatigue. Life is literally like a treadmill. And the only place that it gets you is to the point of exhaustion. It's like Sisyphus, the, the, the Greek god who is always pushing the stone up the hill only for it to come right back down and do it all over the next day. Over and over, everything is right. Even the things that are meant to fill you up, right, to, re, to reinvigorate you, energize you, right, your mouth will get tired from chewing food. Your rear end will get tired from sitting. You'll get midway through your vacation and you'll be bored Everything zaps us. It's this constant flowing of the streams, the constant toil. It's, it's draining. Now, some of us are holding on. Maybe there's something new coming down the pipeline. Maybe something's going to change on the horizon. It's like the kid who's at school. He, he's get, he gets bullied every day at the same place, the same time, by the same person, right? Today, it seems like the bully's two minutes late. Maybe he's sick, right? Maybe I get a day off from getting picked on. And just when you think he's out, out of the woods... Bully comes around the corner, book slams the kid, and pushes him in the locker. That's kind of what life is like to us here, especially in verses 9 and 10. It says that life is always going to be like this under the sun for the foreseeable future. Verses 9 and 10, what has been done is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there, a, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been done in the ages before us. Now, in the techno technological age, we're skeptical of this, right? We see there's all kinds of new gadgets, there's all kinds of new devices, all kinds of new technology out there, right? The new iPhone 10 just came out not too long ago. It's, it's the latest, the greatest technology. Surely, this has got to have some new features, right? Right, the face recognition. You don't have to push a button anymore, punch in a type code. Recognizes your face. Guess what? People have been recognizing each other by their face for a long time. <laughs> right, that latest app that's supposed to help you with productivity, it's just a calendar. It's been around a while. 
or, or the ability to create images to remember a moment in time. Hieroglyphs, like people have been doing this stuff. Everything that's new is just an improvement on what's already been done. But what it shows us is the futility that even though it's been sort of reinvented, it's insufficient for giving life under the sun meeting. It's just a new kind of vapor. Everything has been done before us. There's a French saying, the more things change, the more they turn out to be the same. That's what Ecclesiastes is telling us. And because all of this monotonous futility, the lack of meaningful innovation in this world, everything is forgotten. Verse 11 says that there is no remembrance of former things or people. Now aside from the people who are, who are monuments in our his history books, the vast majority of humanity is anonymous. Right? Just think, who is your great, great, great grandfather? You probably don't know them. Right? And the things that were meaningful to them, the things that they spent their whole life working for and, and toiling after, probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you now. It's been forgotten. And one day, you and I will be forgotten too. Verse 11 finishes with that. Not only will former things be forgotten, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Here's the question again. What is all the toil for? What is the meaning of this all? If you've been listening, you're probably really bummed out right now. Right. When, I was, when I was writing the sermon in my study, I got to stop. I was like on the verge of tears. Like what, what's, why are we doing any of this, right? What, if what the preacher is saying is true, vanity, vanities, all is vanities, what, what is any of this about? This is bleak. It's depressing. Everything under the sun is vapor and fleeting. Why do anything, right? Why, as a church, why would we make disciples, plant churches, renew the city? Why am I up here preaching right now? What's the point? But I've left out a key piece of information for understanding this entire book of Ecclesiastes so far. It's this term, under the sun. Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. And verse two, what do we gain? What's our toil for under the sun? Now that, that phrase, under the sun, he's talking about excuse me, he's talking about the natural world before us. What's under the sun, what's visible, what's physical, the shell of Eden. He's talking about what's under the sun. He's talking about a life without God, a secular life. And the question is, if everything under the sun is meaningless, if everything under the sun is vanity and vapor, where can we find meaning? See, this is where we have to jump out of Ecclesiastes. We have a, we have a vantage point on the, the book of Ecclesiastes that, that whoever was writing this, the preacher, didn't have then. It doesn't make his words less true. They're still very much true. A life without God is vanity of vanities, vapor. But we get to round out this thought here from a, a Christian worldview. See, meaning is found beyond the sun. 
It's not under the sun. Meaning is beyond, above the sun. It's in heaven where God is. That is where meaning can be found. But listen to this. All of our efforts to get there, all of our efforts to access meaning are futile. It's just another thing that we do under the sun. It's, it's religion, man-made religion, working hard to get into heaven, to get God's approval, to get whatever we want from God. And people will spend their whole life doing good deeds, trying to get the scales to balance out so that the good outweighs the bad. But even that is useless, vanity. That itself is toilsome, it's weary, and it's soul-crushing work. Vanity of vanities, nothing but vapor. The only way that meaning and substance can be found under the sun is if God himself brings it down. That's the only way. If somehow God could break into this bleak, fallen, tired world and breathe life into this pile of dirt. That's the only way. And that's precisely what he does. That's what God does when Jesus comes to earth. He comes to restore Eden, to bring back meaning and significance and worth, dignity and value. See, Jesus gives us a life that extends beyond the sun by bringing his own life under the futility of the sun. That's what the cross is about. See, the cross is where the futility of this world is displayed to its fullest degree. That the perfect, righteous, sinless man, he did everything right, but look where it landed him, right on the cross. Dead, just like the rest. That's the futility of this world. But what God brings is not just a man who comes and dies on a cross, but a man who's resurrected, who overcomes the futility of this world and from the inside out is making it like Eden once again. See, in Jesus and only in Jesus is where the weary get their rest. It's the undisrupted Sabbath rest that we're all hoping for and longing for that we find in Hebrews 4.9. Jesus is the new thing that God is doing in Isaiah 43, 19. Jesus' name is remembered and rejoiced in for eternity, generation after generation. It's his name that's promoted, and it's in his name that our names are found. We find ours in the book of life with our faith in Jesus Jesus is the disruption to the cycle of the monotonous futility of this world. It's where Jesus reverses the curse. See, Ecclesiastes is like a primer for us. Ecclesiastes wakes us up to the reality of the futility of this world and what it would be like if God just let go and walked away. God doesn't let go and walk away. God moves towards us. God enters into it. And today we're coming to the Lord's table. And in the sacrament, we remember that it was Christ's body that was broken. It was his blood that was shed. And this meal just doesn't show the futility of the cross. It shows how God is working out the futility. He's bringing meaning back to it. This is a meal of significance. As we take it in, it transforms us. And it's as we abide in Christ, 
as we feast on Christ, not just at the Lord's table, but daily, moment by moment, that is where our life finds meaning. That's where things last. That's where things push back against the darkness and futility. That's why we're here. Right now, a church, every church in the Quad Cities that's preaching the gospel is an outpost that's saying, hey, things don't have to be this way. Things aren't going downhill forever. God has intervened. Father, we thank you for this, this book of Ecclesiastes. Maybe it's frustrating or maybe it's, it's just hard to sit through, but it's good for us. In doing so, it makes us more human. It makes us more, uh, it helps us to better realize the reality of life. And you're not shy uh, from the brokenness. You're not um, afraid to, to step in. You, you come all in. You send your one and only son. And it's in Christ that this whole world finds meaning once again. It's in Christ that, that this, this world is not going to be forever futile. This world will one day be like a garden again bearing fruit. Father, give us eyes to see what you're doing. Help us to hope in and trust in Christ. And Father, would you sustain us in this meal today? Would you give us everything we need? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.